Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Steph. And we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors. And our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With Kobo Writing Life, authors can now publish audiobooks and ebooks right in their KWL account. We don't ask for exclusivity, and you'll always control your pricing in up to 16 currencies. You can also create a pre-order for your audio and ebooks with no date limitations. We have a lot of great promotional opportunities for Kobo Writing Life authors available in the Promotions tab right in their KWL dashboard. If you're an author and you don't have access to the Promotions or Audiobooks tab, email us at writinglife@kobo.com and we'll get you sorted. We're all about providing excellent support. Create your free account today at kobo.com slash writinglife. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. Happy writing! Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Here we are back again. It's time for a topic-based episode. What's up, fellas? How you doing, man? Hey, what's going on? Snow, snow, snow. <laughs> I can say that for once too, actually. <laughs> I'm caught in this southern snowstorm that's been going on. So now you're you're in one of those places that doesn't normally get a lot of snow. So this this must really throw everything for a loop down there. It does. And then you northerners like to make fun of us and <laughs> all the time. Know, all the time. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry that you know, I'm waiting for the one plow truck that the state of Tennessee owns to come down my street <laughs> to make sure I can get out of my house. So, you know, I've got yeah. So it, it really my like my daughter hasn't been in school all week or anything. My wife hasn't worked. It shut everything down. I've got a plow guy that's on my speed dial um, that just yeah. that just hits my. See, driveway. it's just not like that here. So it literally <laughs> like my wife's work has been shut down all week. Really, and school's been shut because you just yeah, it's it it's just it's we're not used to it here. So. It's just, yeah, we can't do any. In our house, you have to get, there's like these big hills to get in and out of our neighborhood and they don't do anything to them. So it's just a block of ice. And a few years ago, I actually tried leaving and my car just turned sideways and went right down into a ditch. And I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just not worth it, you know? Oh, so they don't, they don't salt the streets or anything like that? No, no they don't do any of that stuff. I, no. I, I'll never forget when I was living in Nashville, there was a, a, a storm. <laughs> uh, I think it was like 10 inches maybe. And I was coming home and people were abandoning their cars yeah. on the side of the road and yeah, walking that's what home. It's <laughs> like, yeah. what? what are you doing? A lot of people can't drive in it. And then like, and then it's a combination of that with, we just don't have the equipment here. Like they, like Nashville, I think might have a couple of salt trucks, but like out where I live, I don't know if there's any. So it's just, yeah. You, yeah you, so it really shuts everything down. You got to so. get in front of it too. I, I, I'm lazy. Like I don't salt my driveway. I pay somebody to come by and plow it. And like last year I, I backed my car out. I've got a, a Dodge Challenger, which is a heavy car. It's like 4,000 some pounds. Um, I backed it out of the garage and it hit my driveway and immediately hit the ice and started sliding down. Cause we're on a big hill too. And, and we've got a, like a pond lake sort of thing on one side of my driveway. And like, I was going straight for it. And like, it, it, it just caught the edge of a rock and a tree trunk. And like, that's the only thing that 
that kept my car from going over the edge into the water. So, oh, wow. yeah, so that car stays in the garage now in a trickle charger during the winter time. <laughs> it's not, it's not going anywhere. Wow. Um, and I'm, I'm investing in, 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 uh, weird, weird technology. I've got heated gutters, which I told, uh, I told everybody about a couple weeks back and they're awesome. You know, flip a switch and like, there's no icicles on the house anymore. Um, and I'm looking at a heated driveway. Um, which, which sounds crazy, but it's actually, it's, it's not too cost effect, uh, you know, cost prohibitive to do. Um, and you know, you don't have to, you don't have to plow or shovel anymore. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, if you can afford it, then I mean, that's like a nice convenience to have. And like you said, you don't have to worry about having someone come out and take care of it or salt it yourself or whatever. Well, so that makes honestly, sense. it's, it's the, like, if you start factoring in those costs, like I pay this guy 20 bucks a pop to come out here and plow my driveway. And, you know, we go through bags of salt, you know, like, like crazy, like one or two bags every time we do the driveway, that's another 30 or 40 bucks probably per bag. So like that adds up pretty quick. So when you factor all that in against the cost of just putting some mats underneath some, some blacktop, um, you know, it, it's one, one, it kind of weighs itself out, I guess, is what I'm, what I'm getting at. Sometimes it's worthwhile. Right on. Nice. Anyway. All right. So there's we had weather. we had to talk about it yeah. because there's I actually talk. can relate to y'all a little bit for once. So it was like <laughs> that, it was like last week. It was like 65 degrees here or something. So. Yeah, Zach couldn't wait to come on and be like, "Man, that snow! <laughs> All two inches of it." <laughs> oh, my, and my daughter was out sledding in our backyard and stuff, like having a blast. So it's fun for her. That's so. that's the best. Nice. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Let's get uh, let's get into it today. Uh, the topic is thinking beyond books. So, Zach, uh, you want to set this up for us? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you actually suggested this, but basically, uh, yeah, we're just going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, other mediums, film, television, video games, comics. And uh, I, I think one way to kind of position this conversation, too, is thinking about these types of things like before you write your books. I think that's kind of a or, or like as you're working on your book, thinking about, um, you know, what what types of things, you know, because um think big, <laughs> you know, like obvious, especially the further along you get in your career, you know, like all of us are, you know, we, we want to transcend other mediums and some of us here on the show already kind of are doing that and working towards that. But, uh, and, and so, you know, we kind of want to talk about thinking about that as you are, are writing your stories. So. Well, it's definitely something I'm, I'm conscious of. Um, I, I tend to see these stories play out in my head almost like I'm watching a movie and then I just document it. So I think that kind of plays a, a big you know, part of it. Um, and I've, I've been very fortunate. Everything I've written so far has been optioned um, with the exception of Forsaken, which is the one I always figured would probably go the, the easiest, but um, that one's never had an option on it. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so um, I, I, I've never really like consciously thought, you know, like I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write something that's going to be a movie. Um, I think it's all about like, if, if, if you tell a good story, I think all of that translates across all those different mediums in the, in the end. Um, and it's very, you know, it, it's easy for those things to kind of cloud your thoughts. I think if you, if you let too much of it in there, like you don't want it to necessarily influence the story. Um, I'm trying something new, which, it, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but I've, I've got a new film agent. Um, and, and like my, my last film agent, she was fantastic. She, you know, she got everything optioned. So I, I can't argue with, with that. Um, but she, you know, didn't have, she, she wasn't involved in the process at all you know until the book was basically done um and my new one like he, he wants to beta read like he wants to get in there from the get-go and try to get a real handle on the story and get a feel for it um and give me feedback on it you know as to how it's going to be received on the, the hollywood side and yeah I, I don't know whether that's good or bad but it's something I'm, I'm willing to give it a give it a shot just to see how it works yeah i i think too i wanted to uh ask you 
JD, if you could maybe talk a little bit about some of the advice you gave me for working on the Darwin's Challenge manuscript, which I mean, final revisions before it before it gets to you right now. But um, when when I decided to just write a, a story from scratch, uh, and you you kind of gave me some advice on thinking beyond just the novel. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I wanted to try and change things up for you because you, you'd written other books before and you, you followed the same process kind of each each time. Um, so what I had actually advised you to do is to write it out, you know, first is dialogue only. You know, just go through the, the story start to finish and do nothing but dialogue. And, and that's very important um, because, you know, it, it, you don't have any crutches. You can't rely on, you know, Bob said, Sue said, and, and all these little, you know, things that tip people off. You've got to really use your dialogue to, to you know, to present your characters. Um, once you get that nailed down, you know, we went back through it and I had you write it out as a screenplay um, because that gives you the framework of a, a very solid story. Um, and I wanted to try that, you know, simply because I've, I've done it the other way around where you write a book and then you have to turn that into a screenplay. And I've seen what has to be stripped away from a novel in order to do that. And it basically takes it down to the, the raw bones to the, the, you know, what you really want, the, the skeleton of the story. Um, so I, I wanted to see what would happen if you actually approached it that way and, and wrote it, you know, with just the skeleton and then, then added the, the meat on later. So we, we tried a couple of different things there. Yeah. And, uh, I'll just quickly summarize kind of what we did and where we are in that I, I wrote that dialogue only first draft. It came in at like, I don't know, 40, 40, 50,000 words. Uh, and then I did a second revision. Uh, I brought, I brought it up to about 65,000 on my last revision. I'm anticipating it being in the 80 to 90,000 word range. But what I really liked about the process is it, as you said, it forced me to think about the bare bones elements of the story and, and really focus on that and get that right um, as opposed to, you know, uh, doing it the way I'd done it before. So uh, I really enjoyed that process. I mean, the, the jury will be out until you know, that book goes somewhere. But uh, for now, like it, it, it definitely changed the way I approach storytelling. And it also informed me about, um, and this is sort of time with the pandemic, but this idea of writing a story that doesn't involve you know, 17 location shots, uh, or it doesn't have to be filmed in Tahiti, like, you know, to, to create a setting that, that can maybe be done on a single soundstage or within a certain one studio, and that that's going to be a more attractive story for people who have to come up with the budgets to make these films. So that kind of ties into something I wanted to ask and follow up. So I think, like when I when I was kind of talking about thinking about this beforehand, you know, I, I agree. I don't think you should cloud too much of that, especially if you're early and you're new. Like you really just need to be focused on writing the best story you can and t honing your craft. And obviously we always want to tell the best story we can. But I, th I think what I was getting at was like, you know, if, if you're a lot of the stuff you write, J.D., you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think a lot of the stuff is probably film friendly already. But I'm thinking about someone like me who does a lot of sci-fi which can get expensive really really fast and and i know that that's one thing that a lot of production companies look at when they're thinking about options they look at how much it would cost to film it and that's why a lot of horror movies and stuff get made because usually they're really cheap to make and so i'm thinking like you know we jay and i have like one series that's that is an alien invasion post-apoc series that is just would have tons of special effects and would be i just very expensive movie to make but then we have something like Baron, which is just a, a location or two really a very small cast it would be like no effects or stunts and it would be like really film friendly to do so like i don't know is there any advice 
from your standpoint, like looking at it from that aspect, like especially if you write in a genre that maybe would be more expensive to make, but you kind of have some options of which way you could go, or should you just still not worry about it, you think? Well, I think a lot of that stuff is shifting. I mean, one of the reasons why Jay and I had these conversations at the at the beginning is because, you know, the pandemic was obviously just, just starting off, and I've got a lot of friends in Hollywood, and I was, I was hearing how productions were getting shut down just because they, they didn't have the ability to film a giant crowd shot anymore. Um, or they couldn't go on this particular location or that particular location. Um, those same people were were looking at new projects. You know, what are we going to be filming a year from now? And they were, you know, purposely targeting things that could be filmed, you know, during a pandemic. You know, just in case that thing didn't, you know, it didn't run its course and it hasn't yet. You know, so I think even if you watch television right now, the new stuff that's coming out, you can kind of see it. Like I'm I'm watching The Stand right now, and even though there's a lot of you know big scenes in there, if you watch, there's you know most of these scenes have very small groups of people. You know. It's it there. You can tell that they were shot during the pandemic and, it, and that, that that's very telltale. Um, I think the technology has changed quite a bit because they can film extremely cool, you know, special effects, sci-fi type movies now completely on green screen. Um, and that's you know changed a lot as far as the budget goes. They don't have to build these giant sets anymore. They they you know create them in a computer and then they just they throw them in later. Um, it's still expensive, but you know obviously it's it's not as much as it, it was. I mean if you compare something like the old Blade Runner versus the new Blade Runner, like you know the things that they were able to do, um, you know they had the same look and feel, but you know they were done in completely different different methods. Um, I think that's 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 very important and something to to think about. Um, yeah, I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's just, you know, no, that's all good stuff. So, yeah, I think um, um, there's there's people in Hollywood specifically tasked with, with reading books and figuring out a rough budget. Um, and they'll go through it. Like, you know, Caller's Game is, is coming out um, February 22nd, um, or it may already be out by the time this, this episode airs. Um, I, I When I was writing it, like, I, I felt that it was probably like a $200 million movie if they wanted to film it. I was, I've been told in the last week and a half that it could be done for 60 or 80. Um, oh, wow. by, by people that, you know, actually understand what it, what it costs to do, you know, every, everything in that. So th- those people tend to read it first, either at the behest of a, a studio head or a production company to kind of clue everybody in as to what this production is going to cost. Um, so that's, you know, that's definitely something that happens. Um, and a lot of film producers, you know, they're, they're savvy enough where they can do that as well. They can read through the book and they can take off those boxes and they can walk away with a rough budget when, you know, by the time they close the cover on it, you know, they, they understand where that's going to be. Um, and many screenwriters if you sit down with somebody who's a professional screenwriter you know you, you could tell them hey i need a this type of movie your budget is going to be x um here's your rough idea for the story go and and they'll they'll write it and they'll hit that target from a dollar amount like they'll actually write the script based on what what they can spend um so it's approached in a lot of different ways so you brought up something else i want to ask what is your opinion on like screenwriting i mean do you think that's something that authors should even be worrying about trying to do themselves like have you thought about screenwriting or do you think it's a thing where you just kind of write your book if it gets option let someone else handle that and give their vision on it because they're the because screenwriting is way different than writing a novel <laughs> um and so i don't know what's kind of your opinion on that yeah you know it's i i still haven't decided um you know and i've heard so many conflicting thoughts on it you know dean Koontz, i've talked to a couple of times about this sort of thing he, he writes a screenplay for every single book that he writes um whether it's going to go somewhere or not he, he likes to write the screenplay um i know other people that that do that as well I, i've my agent has brought up me adapting some of my own books, you know, as, as a screenplay before. I, I, I don't know that it's something I want to get into only because it's, it seems very time consuming and it's not like I know how to write a book. 
Um, and, and I know how much time that's going to take me. And if, if you know, I, I don't know what you know, doing a screenplay would do to my, my overall schedule. So I don't know that I want to fit it in there. Um, and I've also been told that, you know, once you write the screenplay, like let's say I, I crank out the one for Fourth Monkey and I put it out there, then that screenplay is floating around Hollywood now instead of my book floating around Hollywood. Um, so it's a, it's a different animal that, that people are looking at. Um, so I, I don't know that I, I want to be in the, in that mix. Um, but that, that may change. I, I, I've got a feeling I'm going to end up trying it at some point just to, to see if, you know, see if I'm good at it. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, the, the mechanics of it aren't hard. I mean, it's basically, it's just writing dialogue only with some stage direction. That part isn't hard. What's hard is having a feel for where you are in the story because there are, there are some pretty standard guidelines around how long a screenplay should be based on the length of the film or the TV series. And, and that's completely foreign to me. And, and I don't even remember what the page number was, J.D., but I, I think I, when I was done, I'm like, well, it's like 240-some pages, which is like... <laughs> oh, it's going to be way smaller than that. It's like between 120, 150. Right, thing, right. You know? so, the, so like then, then I'm thinking like, well, okay, I, I, I didn't do that to sell the screenplay. I did it as a, as a creative exercise. So it didn't matter how many pages yeah. it came out, but it started me thinking like, well, okay, is this a movie or is this a television series? And if it's a television series... You know, what does that look like? So it does open up a whole nother set of questions and it's a different skill set. So um, it's not something I would do lightly, I would say. No, and, and that's one of those things that comes up all the time too. You know, like Fourth Monkey has been tossed around. You know, I've talked to so many different people on it, and half of them are in the camp that it should be three feature films. You know, one for each book. Um, the other other camp wants to see it as a streaming series. You know, with at least three seasons. Um, you know, and it, obviously you have to approach e either of those things in two very different ways. Um, the nice thing about the series is they can go back through stuff that I actually cut out the book. You know, we can throw in ideas that didn't, you know, didn't make the actual novel um, that we might be able to, you know, flesh out a little bit more in, in, in a series. Um, that's always good. Um, the opposite happens when you're making a feature film because um, you've got to cut a lot of stuff out. You've got to get that thing down to two hours. You know, to, to put this in perspective, typically one page of, of screenplay is, is usually one minute worth of screen time. That's that's the general rule of thumb. Right. Um, one of the other things that, that Kuntz told me that I didn't realize, um, he, he actually started off in that world. Uh, one of his very first gigs that he had is he would get screenplays uh, for movies that were coming out and he would write the novelization of them. Um, so that could be part of his process, you know, and that, that actually intrigued me, the fact that he did that. Um, it's not something I would really be interested in doing, but at the same time, I could see how that might have, you know, helped him as a writer, you know, because he sees that structure. You know, you see the screenplay straight off the bat, and then you're turning that into a book, and you're turning the next one into a book, and the next one. And he was cranking out a lot of these. Um, I, I think that kind of pounds home the structure of a novel into your head and probably shaped the way that he, he wrote his future books. Now, would you, you were talking, when you're talking about Fourth Monkey, would you rather see, would, like you as the author, like forget everyone else, like would you rather see that as a TV show or as a movie? Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, the film rights for that book sold before the print rights did. Um, everything kind of came together over like a two-week time frame, but we, we, we sold that first. Um, and it came down to a bidding war between two different studios, and one of them was going to do just a feature film. Um, and the other one that came to the table was CBS, and they said, well, we'll do a feature film and we'll do a series as a spinoff. So yeah, they, they wanted to do a feature film that ran in the theaters, um, and then CBS All Access was new, so they were going to have a, a follow-up TV series on, on CBS All Access. Um, so that was kind of the best of, of both worlds. Um, but it didn't actually play out that way. It, you know, at, once they bought it, then the, the, the talk shifted to, well, we're going to put it on the network. 
Um, and that kind of scared me because I didn't really want, you know, fourth monkey to be on network television. Like, you know, mm-hmm. what they could do at nine o'clock on a Tuesday is, is not as good to me anyway, as a viewer, as, as what could be done on, you know, HBO or, you know, something that just doesn't have those, those limitations. Um, so, you know, a big part of me, I think was kind of relieved when that option expired and we got the rights back and we were able to take it out as a trilogy. Um, there, there's so many different factors involved and, and, you know, honestly, like fourth monkey, like I, I'm like six or seven books, you know, past that already, you know, like if I, if I would have put, you know, I, I could have easily gotten completely wrapped up in that and started writing screenplays and, you know, write a feature film screenplay and then write a, you know, network, you know, television series screenplay. And like, I could, that, that might've been my entire life for the past five or six years if I, if I allowed it to be. And I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't. Um, one more question about film and TV that, and just to kind of get both your thoughts and this, so this should kind of blend into the next thing I want to talk about. But I mean, like it seems like with all the, the streaming and stuff and all these, especially now, like you have all these new, like every channel now has its own streaming service and is competing for your subscription dollars. And I'm just they, waiting for Barker plus to come on the scene. <laughs> Matt, right. <laughs> Barker. Barker plus. Plus. Everything's a plus. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, and, but, you know, with that, everyone needs content. So um, on the outside, it kind of feels like we're really hitting this shift where for years in, in movies, especially in movies, not so much TV, but it seems like Hollywood's really been like banking on the big franchise and the sequel and remakes. And they're not like, like I got really frustrated when Game of Thrones ended and their answer to that was, well, we're just going to write new Game of Thrones stories. It's like, no, there's so many great fantasy series out there. You got like I think HBO would have been great to do something like Dune or something like that um, instead of making it a movie. But like there's so many other fancy things they could do. Um, I'm, what I'm So what I'm asking is, I mean, it, it, it really feels like a time where there's a lot more opportunity to get our books made because maybe maybe some of these companies because they need content are starting to look for more original stuff and not just banking on remakes and established franchises. I mean, does it feel like it's kind of the case? I would love to say that it is, but I just read a story yesterday. They're, they're redoing um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I saw that. (laughs) You know, it's like Hollywood just keeps going back and rehashing some of the things that have worked for them in the past. And, and, you know, hitting that comfort zone. And, you know, we're going to see Spider-Man again in our lifetimes four or five different times. We're going to see different Peter Parkers because um, they're going to keep hitting that well as many times as they possibly can. Um, I, I, there's definitely something to that. I mean, all these these streaming services, you know, they, they're, they've they got some big coffers. They've got some big you know purses and, and a lot of capital behind them. And they can go out there and they can create some, some things that, you know, even network television wasn't able to do before. Um, you know, like watching the stand, you know, the, the amount of money that I know that they, they spent filming this is very different than what they were spending on, on series even three or four years ago. Um, you know, these things are all being treated as if they're, they're feature films, and it's because of this subscription revenue. Um, my, I think my biggest problem with it, though, I think a lot of people are picking up these different streaming services, and I think they're going to end up streamlining their streaming services. You know, like how many of these can, can we actually get? You know, like I purpose, you know, I've, I've got HBO, I've got Netflix, I've got Disney, I've got, um, you know, Hulu. You know, we've, we've got so many of them, like, and, and, you know, 90% of the content is the same across all of them. Um, you know, I, I think people are going to start cutting back, especially right now, you know, with, with the way things are. Um, they're always going to be looking for something to film. I, I think 
it's it's very much wild west right now um they tend to be um leaning towards the same venues that they were before this the same you know production companies the same people you know to try and find some of this content i'd love to see that shift um, because there's a lot of independently published you know product out there that i don't think is even being considered um when it comes to to any of these services um that may change and I, I, it does feel like it is i mean like even in my case caller's game you know it, it's being independently published in, in a, you know, a couple countries and then the rest are traditionally published um, but we're talking film studios on that. We're talking to production companies. Like, there's a good chance you know, it's going to get optioned. I'm not concerned about that. You know, whether or not it gets made is a whole other deal. Um, but, you know, if you go back four or five years ago, a book that was coming out in that particular, you know, hybrid model, you know, they probably wouldn't have looked at it. So it's it's shifting for sure. Yeah, that's good to hear because definitely would like – there's just so many – good books out there, you know, indie, traditional, whatever, like more of that stuff needs to make it to the screen, you know, so. I think it just comes down to the machine, you know, like they, they had, you know, everybody was just used to working with the, this particular model, you know, books coming out of the traditional publishing houses, those people at the publishing houses were passing them on to the film people, um, to the scouts, you know, which we've talked about before who read these books. And if the books are worthwhile, the scouts start telling the production companies and the studios about them and they create that buzz. Um, but there was a certain chain of command there that, you know, was, has been in place forever. Um, and I think moving away from that is, is, is what's causing all this to slow down. Like they're, they're still, you know, kind of stuck in that, that rut. Um, but I think they're at this point, they're, they're opening some doors and some windows and they're looking at other options, which is good. Well, I'll tell you another, another thing that's kind of interesting that's happening right now, like one shift where we're seeing more TV and movie, like original content come is like, I don't know how much you guys know about this. Um, cause I know I'm the big gamer here, but, um, one of the something that's happened right now is a lot of video games are, are going to be adapted to movie and television. So Sony recently actually opened up like a, a, I don't remember what it's called, but they opened up a production studio where they're trying to get some of their video game IPs made into movies. And they've already, um, they have a video game called Uncharted, which is being filmed right now. Um, or it might've wrapped already, but Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg are starring in that. And then um, the last of us, which is <clears throat> that game is one of the greatest post-apocalyptic stories told in any medium um, is going to be a television show on HBO um, <clears throat> done by the people who did Chernobyl. Um, and they just casted uh, Pedro Pascal as the main lead for that, the guy who is the Mandalorian. Um, and he was also in Game of Thrones. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that's kind of an interesting thing that's happening. Um, but I guess, like, one thing I want to out, like, J.D., do you have any experience with any of your stuff, like, with video games or, like, talking to anybody yeah, about, about games I, at I've all? I've got a... a a book that I wrote um, that's based in, in New York, um, and there's a company out in California that's trying to turn it into an augmented reality game. Um, okay. So, yeah, and they, they've been working on that, I, I think, God, we're, it's 2021, so almost three years now, two and a half, three years um, on and off. Um, and I, I think they're just kind of waiting for the technology to sort of catch up. Like initially when we started talking about it, like they, they thought Google Glass was going to be the thing. Because um, the, the idea behind this is you can basically walk around the real New York with, in that case, Google Glass on, and you would solve this murder yourself. So you, would, you could actually see the events in the book playing out through those augmented reality things. Um, 
you know, and, and now they've, they've shifted that to, you know, using iPhones um, because there's augmented reality, you know, available through that. Um, so I, I think once the technology catches up to where they, they want that to be, I think that's going to be a very cool crossover. Um, most video games have very intense, very cool storylines to them. I think a lot of people don't necessarily give them credit for that. Um, they don't. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, they're, they're more intricate than they are for, for film or TV just because yeah, they, absolutely. Yeah, they, they have to be dynamic. You know, they're not, uh, you know, a static, you know, storyline at any one straight direction it has to move into multiple directions and you know, a lot of thought goes being it goes into that um i think that's why hollywood taps that market a lot to, you know to for films well they haven't tapped it very successfully yet i mean like oh, come on doom with the rock that was awesome <laughs> dude doom was terrible <laughs> but like i as a non-gamer i i have a i have a, a question that uh, about this because this is always what's confused me like games are very dynamic and they're very interactive. Any adaptation by definition won't be. So how does someone adapt a story that's dynamic and make it purely linear for movie or television? Well, like, I mean, a lot of, I see what you're asking. Um, but I think that there's a couple ways to look at that. I think that for one, you know, they can just, tell a story in the world with those characters that like, it doesn't necessarily have to be a direct adaptation of what happens in a game. Other thing that happens in a video game is that a lot of games, um, yes, the player does interact and the player does have choices to make along the way, but oftentimes you always get to the same result at the end. There are some games where you like your choices do impact the ending and you can get multiple endings. Um, so, like, I just played a game, uh, uh, I finished a game about a month ago called Ghost of Tsushima, and I don't know if I should spoil it, but you get to make a choice at the end whether you kill a specific character or not, and depending on what you do, you get a different ending. Um, but most games, you just get to the same ending regardless. Um, now, other things in the story might change along the way, but a lot of games, you're just kind of, like, w- going through the story and um, and interacting with it along the way. Um and, and, and to JD's point, too, um, like some of the best storytelling and stuff is being told. Like a Jay, I, Jay and I were talking the other day. I just finished about two days ago this game called Death Stranding. And it basically was a movie. I mean, it was it's done by this guy, Hideo Kojima. You play as Norman Reedus. Like he's the main character. He did all the motion cap for it and did all the narrating. It has Guillermo del Toro in it. Like Cohen O'Brien was in it for a minute. <laughs> But it was this huge post-apocalyptic story. And I have to tell you, like, it, it, the game took me 45 hours to play. And I did that over a good amount of time. It's not like I... Um, a weekend. Yeah. Well, you have to remember, though, this is what I do instead of watching Netflix and stuff at night. So I'm, I'm thinking about all the pages um, that could have been written in 45 hours. <laughs> <laughs> there uh, go, yeah. go, go on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because that's what I'm doing instead of writing during the day. So uh, in my downtime at night when I got all my work done for my books, <laughs> I was playing this game while Jay's watching Netflix. And um, and anyways, uh, but what's crazy is that this particular game had a lot of like long cutscenes that you can actually go on YouTube and just watch it as a movie. But it's like seven and a half hours of it was just you watching the screen. But the story it told... I mean, when the game was over, I told Jay, I cried for half an hour. Like, because you built up a connection with all these characters through this 45 hours. 
And and by the end, when the resolution came and the twist came, I was so emotionally connected to these characters and like going through this journey with them that it was like it was something that you can't get in another medium, like for for a lot of different reasons. But um, it also was just like a way more original story than you're seeing out in movies and television right now. You know, see, I, I wonder, though, like that's exactly my point. Like if you're you can't take something that's as intricate as that and it's complex and it takes 45 hours and and take that into another medium and satisfy that that person like isn't it always going to come up short from the game i don't think the i don't think that you're necessarily going to satisfy the people who played the game but they can reach a wider audience for that ip so like you they could turn death stranding into a movie and get it down to like two hours. Like I, I, they, they absolutely could. I, I, um, or it would make an even better TV show. I think the right way, to, um, the right way to do it is just to grab the spark of the idea behind the game and then run with something new. Because I'm, I'm guessing you, as a gamer, different. as somebody who's actually finished the game, you know, you probably don't want to sit down in a theater and watch two hours of the game. You know, because you you know yeah. you know every aspect, you know every story beat. Um, you know, like if they can grab the you know the spark of that idea and give you something fresh that's set in that universe, I think that's probably the way to go. And that's where my struggle is as a fan of these games. Like, I kind of don't want to see them made into movies because they're already better experiences than watching a movie. Because, because the again, like the stories that are being told in video games right now, it's way more innovative and inventive than anything Hollywood's doing. So, like, for me, I'm just kind of like, well, I'd rather just play the game again because it's just... And a lot of the... Like, 45 hours is pretty long for a game. Like, The Last of Us is about... I think that game takes probably 15 or 20 to beat. So it's much shorter and that will be like also easier for them to, you know, condense down onto the screen. Um, but yeah, it's, I have a struggle with that, you know? Um, I, I do want to briefly bring this back around to um, how this applies to writers. Cause I get asked about gaming a lot and obviously I don't have any experience with it. Like I, I've wanted to get into it. Jay and I have actually, we talked to an indie video game studio one time about, um, trying to uh, possibly adapt one of our video game or one of our books into a game. Um, and it was just going to be way too expensive. Like they just weren't on the same, we were looking for more of a partnership and they were like, no, you can pay us to do it. And it was going to be like, God, how much was it? Jay, like $150,000 or something like that. And it's expensive to make a game. And it was just like two guys were going to make it and it was going to take them a long time. So, um, but there's, this is a weirder thing to get into because like video games usually like are written by people on a staff for a studio. So it's like, they're not necessarily out there looking for book adaptations and stuff. You know, the two, the two examples I could think of when I was doing this was the Witcher. The Witcher was a really good example that actually the, the game is what made the books famous and made it even possible for it to be a TV show. Um, and then the other one is Metro 2033, which has become a really, um, good game series, um, but is based based off books too. So um, I, I just wanted to bring it up and talk about games a little bit because um, people ask me about how to get into it a lot. But it's I think it is harder to get like one of your books adapted to a game because again, there's already these studios coming up with amazing stories and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, honestly, even in my case with the, the story that's being adapted for that, that game, like it, as a novel, like it would take a serious rewrite in order to make it work as a novel. Like it, it kind of fit the framework of the game and it just, which is why we've kind of run with it. Um, but it's, they're, they're two totally different animals. 
Yeah. So <clears throat> it's interesting. I do want to briefly touch really quick. Um, have you had any experience with comic books? Um, I, some guys actually created one for Forsaken. Um, and I know that was shopped around, but, but none of the, the companies actually bid at it. Um, the artwork was great, um, but you know it, it needed some work. Um, it's it's not something that I would probably go out and, and try to do on my own. Um, I, I'm not opposed to it, but it's just again it's it's outside of my wheelhouse, and it's not something I would want to spend my own time on because I'm just not quite sure where to where to go with it. Um, but you know, if another group were to approach me and wanted to adapt something, I'm you know I'm all for it. Yeah, I've thought about doing like, and I don't know if I really have feel like I have the right series yet, but I've thought about like it, to me that would be a perfect opportunity for a Kickstarter. Like if you had a real a series that was like really good for adapting to a comic and it had some you sold a lot of books on it, like it seems like that would be the way to go to be to do a Kickstarter. So Yeah, I mean with I with know. me Forsaken is the only one where I actually own those rights. You know, my, my publishers have the rights mm-hmm. to graphic novels and that kind of thing in my other contracts. Um, even with Caller's game, you know, like it's it, that's so convoluted with it being hybrid. You know, like some of my publishers have those graphic novel rights and other ones don't. Um, so for me to try to create something like that on my own, I would have to be very particular as to which country it could be released in. And like, it, I just it's a path I don't really want to go down. Yeah, I bet the graphic novels are much more closely tied to the to novels than they are to other mediums. So it probably gets bundled into a lot of contracts. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, that was basically most stuff I want to talk about. I know we're kind of coming to the end here. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this stuff more, you know, because um, there's even other memes we didn't touch on. You know, um, it'd be cool for you to have Chris Fox on and maybe talk about tabletop gaming because he turned one of his series into a uh, into a tabletop game too, like RPG. So, uh, you know, those are some other mediums that'd be really interesting. But anyways, cool. Nice. What do we want to ask our audience? I didn't come up with a question. <laughs> <laughs> let's think of one now. Well, I was terrible I, at preparing, apparently. No, so. I, I, let's um, let's ask them. You know, what, are you thinking about other mediums yeah. as you write, or are you just keeping your nose down and and getting the job done on your novel? I think that's a legitimate question. Perfect. I, nice. I, I vote for keeping your nose down. <laughs> Get to that last page of the book, then worry about the other things. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah. I think that is the best thing to do. So. Yeah. Nice. All righty. Awesome. So who do we have up next week, JD? Uh, I'm going to probably butcher this name. Um, Gene Hanf Korolitz. I think you got it. (laughs) Uh, Most people probably are familiar with her and just don't realize it. She's the author of the book, You Should Have Known, um, which is the basis for the, the HBO series, The Undoing. Um, which was adapted by uh, David E. Kelly, um, directed by Susan Bear. It's got Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant in it, Donald Sutherland. A fantastic series. Um, she's coming on to talk about that, and she's also got a new book coming out in May called The Plot. So she's going to tell us about that as well. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. It's a bit meta because the, the plot is about a writer in the publishing industry. So that uh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, yeah it'll be a fun conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.